If you're new to Broadview, one of our favorite pastimes of late is to listen to me stumble over Hebrew names in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if that's the reason you came to church today, I've got good news for you that you could probably already guess. Today is our final Sunday in our series called Rebuilding Life Tools from Ezra and Nehemiah. And we've got three chapters to cover, Nehemiah 11, 12, and 13. And two of those chapters are just chock full of these names, which brings up the question again, why do I read every single word? Why do I read all those names? Isn't, isn't it a waste of time to read all of those words? Well, not exactly. You see, here at Broadview, uh, we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, not just the easy parts, not just the parts that are easily pronounceable. Um, every name that I read is a real person who lived in a real place at a real time in history. They're as real as your great-great-grandparents, whose reality I'm certain you're thankful for if you think about it for a minute. And so we should be just as thankful for these Israelites whose names I will attempt in vain to read in just a moment. Why? Because it was God's preservation of ancient Israel that gave birth to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so when I read these names, please understand that I'm not reading some piece of fiction. No fiction writer in the history of the world would ever create so many fake characters that served no other purpose other than to establish the reality of the story. So think about that. Uh, so these are real people. These are not fake characters. Uh, these are real names of real people in a real time and real place. And so as we go through Nehemiah chapters 11 through 13, it's going to be like eating a big plate of nachos. Okay, can you relate to that? You might take a bite and realize that, well, there wasn't just that much flavor in that bite. You know, that was just like a chip. But... Uh, so what I'll do is I'll interrupt the reading every so often and uh, try to point out some life principles that I hope will apply to you. And, uh, and then you might come to another bite as we continue the reading and, and you'll, uh, that you'll discover that that has some spiritual flavor to it, you know, and you, so you can taste the cheese and the meat that's flavored with salt and pepper and chili powder, just a touch of cumin and cayenne pepper. And you can, you can taste the beans that sort of take the edge off of the heat, and, but still gives you the protein for your soul, okay? And, and so uh, when we get to the end, when we get to Nehemiah chapter 13, I'm going to serve you a big bite of jalapeno peppers. And it's going to sting some of you. Might even make you cry. But I'm going to feed it to you even if it hurts. Why? Because it's my job as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. It's my job to feed you, the flock of God, the whole counsel of God, and this is the meal that our great shepherd has prepared for us today. So let's dig in. Nehemiah chapter 11, I'll be reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible, and as someone pointed out to me, uh, one of the good things about there being so many different English translations is that when I mispronounce a word, 
of one of these names, it might look different in your translation, and you might think, oh, it, it must read differently, you know? So you don't know that I mispronounced it. So I've got that going for me. Um, here's the backstory. God's people, Israel, had been taken into captivity many years before by the Babylonians. And decades after that, the conquering Persians allowed the Israelites to go back home and rebuild their capital city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple so they could worship their God, the Most High God, the God that you and I know is the only true God, and also rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, which would protect the city from invaders. And so by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 11, everything's been completed. Okay, There's only one thing that Jerusalem needs now, and it's people. And so we read in Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, these words. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. And you might think, oh my goodness, so many people wanted to get in that they cast lots. They had like a lottery system, and only certain people could get in. Not exactly. If you drew the short straw, if your name was called, in other words, uh, you had to go live in Jerusalem. It was not exactly a blessing at that point in time. And so there were, however, in verse 2, certain people that volunteered. It said, the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. It's like the others who were not chosen and who did not volunteer. They patted them on the head and they said, bless your heart. And we all know what that means. But, so it wasn't exactly a good thing to have to go live in Jerusalem. But that's where the action is going to be. And uh, then in verses, uh, verse 3 through verse 6, we begin to have a listing of follow, the following groups of people who settled in Jerusalem. Okay, And it's divided up a little bit for us. And the first group are Judah's descendants. We read in verse 3. These are the heads of the province who stayed in Jerusalem, but in the villages of Judah each lived in his own property in their towns. The Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants, while some of the descendants of Judah and Benjamin settled in Jerusalem, Judah's descendants are these. Okay? Athaliah, son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of Perez's descendants, and Maasiah, son of Baruch, son of Colhozah, son of Hazaiah, son of Adiah, son of Joarib, son of Zechariah, a descendant of the Shilonite. The total number of Perez's descendants who settled in Jerusalem was 468 capable men. Then we come to Benjamin's descendants in verses 7 through 9. These were Benjamin's descendants. Salo, son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Kaliah, son of Maasiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and after him, Gabiah and Salai, 928. Joel, son of Zikri, was the officer over them, and Judah, son of Hasanuah, was second in command over the city. Then in verses 10 through 14, we come to the priests. The priests, Jediah, son of Joarib, Jachin, and Sariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Moriath, son of Ahuteb, the chief official of God's temple, and their relatives who did the work at the temple, 822. Adiah, son of Jeroham, son of Pelaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malkijah, and his relatives, the heads of families, 242. 
Amashai, son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshelamoth, son of Emor, and their relatives, capable men, 128. Zabdiel, son of Hagadolim, Hagadolim, rather, hate to mispronounce that one, was their chief. Then you have the Levites in verses 15 through 18. The Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hashab, son of Az, Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, and Shabbatai, uh, and Josabad, from the heads of the Levites, who supervised the work outside the house of God. Mataniah, son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, the one who began the thanksgiving and prayer. Bakbukiah, second among his relatives. And Abda, son of Shamua, son of Galal, son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city, 284. Verse 19, the gatekeepers. Akub, Talman, and their relatives who guarded the city gates, 172. Then in verses 20 through 24, we have some other information. The rest of, the, of Israel, the priests and the Levites, were in all the villages of Judah, each on his own inherited property. The temple servants lived on Ophel. Zehi and Gishbah supervised the temple servants. The leader of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, Uzai son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the descendants of Asaph, who were the singers for the service of God's house. There was, in fact, a command of the king regarding them and an ordinance regulating the singer's daily task. Pethahiah, son of Meshazabel, of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in every matter concerning the temple. Then in verses 25 through 36, we have all of the villages where these people lived. As for the farming settlements with their fields, some of Judah's descendants lived in Kiriath Arba and Dibon and their surrounding villages and Jacob, Jacob Zael and its settlements, and Jeshua, Moladah, Beth Pelet, Hazar Shual, and Beersheba and its surrounding villages, and Ziklag and Makona and its surrounding villages, and M. And in Rimon, Zorah, Jarmuth, and Zanoah, and Adalam with their settlements, and Lachish with its fields, and Azekah and its surrounding villages. So they settled from Beersheba to Hinnom Valley. Benjamin's descendants from Geba, Michmash, Ijon, Bethel, and its surrounding villages, Anathoth, Nob, Aniah, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalot, Lod, Anono, and Craftsman's Valley. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. Now, beginning in chapter 12, we, have, we identify the priests and the Levites. And so in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12, these are the priests that came up with Zerubbabel at the beginning of Ezra in the first return. These are the priests and Levites who went up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and with Jeshua. Sarai, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malach, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Ido, Genethoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joirib, Jediah, Salu, Amak, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the heads of the priests and the relatives from the days of Jeshua. The Levites, Jeshua, Benoi, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah. He and his relatives were in charge of the songs of praise. Bakbukiah, Unai, and their relatives stood opposite them in the services. And then in verses 10 and 11, these are the high priests who were from the time of Zerubbabel, in between the time of the Zerubbabel and the time of Nehemiah and beyond. Jeshua fathered Joachim, Joachim fathered Eliashib, Eliashib fathered Joida, Joida fathered Jonathan, and Jonathan followed Jaduah. 
In verses 12 through 21, we have priests in the days of Jehoiakim, who was the high priest between Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, verse 12. In the days of Jehoiakim, the heads of the priestly families were Moriah of Sariah, Hananiah of Jeremiah, Meshulam of Ezra, Jehonahan of Amariah, Jonathan of Malachi, Joseph of Shebaniah, Adnah of Harim, Helkiah of Mariamoth, uh, Marioth, uh, Zechariah of Iddo, Meshulam of Genethon, Zikri of Abijah, Piltai of Modiah of Meniamin, Shemua of Bilgah, Jeho- Jehonathan of Shemaiah, Mataniah of Joirib, Uzai of Jediah, Kali of Salai, Eber of Amuk, Hashabiah of Hilkiah, and Nethanel of Jediah. And then in verses 22 through 26, we have Levites during many generations. Verse 22, we read, In the, in the days of Elishab, Joida, Jehohanan, and Jaduah, the heads of the families of the Levites and priests were recorded while Darius the Persian ruled. Levi's descendants, the family heads, were recorded in the book of the historical events during the days of Jehonanan, son of Eliashib, the heads of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, along with their relatives opposite them, gave praise and thanks, division by division, as David, the man of God, had prescribed. This included Mataniah, Bakbukiah, and Obadiah. Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the city gates. These served in the days of Joiakim, son of Jeshua, son of Josedach, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe. Then, starting in chapter 12, verse 27, the people started to party. Why? Because they finally got through the reading of all those names? Perhaps. Or... They were going to celebrate the wall being rebuilt. I think that's a little bit more accurate. And so why why is that a a cause for celebration? Because when you have a wall in ancient days, then you have a city. Without a wall, it's not much of a city. Not for long. The invaders will come. So here's what we read in verses 27 through 30. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites, wherever they lived, and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from the settlements of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests... And Levites had purified themselves. They purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. Remember that in just a minute. Okay? Then here's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah took all the people that had gathered. He divided them into two groups. Each group had a large choir. They had a leader, in fact, a number of leaders. They had priests who blew trumpets, and they had other musicians. And then Nehemiah did this. He sent one of the groups along the wall. You could walk along the wall, okay? He sent one group along the wall counterclockwise and the other group clockwise until they converged at the other side of the city. What was at the other side of the city? The temple. And that's where they worship God. 
And so this was a pretty cool event that's going on. So let's read about that in verses 31 through 43. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests' sons with trumpets, and Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachur, son of Asaph, followed, as well as his relatives. Shemaiah, Azarel, Micaiah, Gelali, Maya, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Ezra the scribe went in front of them. At the fountain gate, they climbed the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and went above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second Thanksgiving procession went to the left. And I followed it with half the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the opens to the broad wall, above the Ephraim gate, and by the old gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the Tower of the Hundred to the Sheep Gate. They stopped at the gate of the guard. The two thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials accompanying me, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Maniamen, Micaiah, Eloani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzai, Shehohanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. Then the singers sang with Jezrahiah as the leader. On that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. Now, if you're still with me, God bless you and your children. If you're not, now's the time to refocus, okay? ESPN on your phone can wait. All right? Listen to me. I want to interject just a couple of things. First of all, it is good for us to stop our busy lives from time to time and celebrate God's goodness. Okay? That's what coming to church is really all about. I know it takes effort to come to church. I mean, you could be doing a lot of other things. You could be sleeping in. You could be exercising. You could be mowing your lawn. You could be mowing my lawn. But you know, there's more than you may realize going on when you choose to take a break each week, come together with the family of God, and worship Him. Worship the God who created you, the God who sustains you, the God who has blessed you, And hear a word from him, from his word, and just being with God's people. There's a lot of good that happens when you make that sacrifice of time to come together and celebrate God's goodness. And that's what we do when we come together. We want to simply enjoy God. We enjoy God. And we celebrate the life that he gives us. Okay? Now, I also want you to notice, as I pointed out very briefly a minute ago, that the priests and the Levites, they prepared for their service. They prepared for the worship of God by purifying themselves. Okay? They prepared their hearts to worship God. And I think it would be good practice, if you're not already in the practice of doing this, 
of preparing your heart for worship before we come together as a church family to worship God. You know, there are some people, and I just don't understand this, but there are some people who skip the worship of God altogether. Um, And I'm not talking about people who have to leave after Sunday school and and they have to go to work. I understand that. You know, you have to make a living. Uh, I'm not talking about people who have medical conditions and they can't sit for a long, extended period of time. I, I understand that. I'm talking about people who say things like this. Well, I don't go to worship because I don't get anything out of it. Well, I may be talking, obviously, to the wrong people because you're here. But I'll just tell you this. If you don't put anything into it, you're not going to get anything out of it. You know, you come to, you come to worship God with a foul attitude, mad at the world, and basically with a, an attitude, a mindset that says, God, I don't care what you tell me, I'm not going to do it. Guess what? You may not get much out of it if you've closed your heart already. You know, I was thinking about, you know, maybe later today, uh, going out to my car and just sitting in my car and not, not going anywhere, just sitting there. You know, maybe after a while I'd, I'd complain about the heat in the car and and maybe I would even complain that the car's not doing anything for me. I mean, it's not going anywhere. And someone might even ask me, well, do you have fuel in the car? No, I don't have fuel in the car. I didn't, I didn't bother to put fuel in the car. Um, I, was, I was still expected to do something for me. I was still expected to take me somewhere. You know, and after a while, maybe I'll get tired of sitting in my car, my unfueled car, because it doesn't do anything for me. And so maybe I'll stop sitting in it. Maybe I'll just let everybody know, you know, I just don't get anything out of that car. Or if I want to get something out of the car, maybe I need to put some fuel into it. You know, it's amazing. Who would have thought that putting something into what you want to, quote, work for you would actually be effective? But week after week, there are people who don't fuel up their worship experience with prayer. They don't connect with God in any way, and they wonder why worship doesn't work for them. You might as well go sit in an unfueled car. It's going to work about as good. You know, as a starter, here's here's what I would ask you to do to consider Before worship each Sunday, just take a moment and pray, Lord, speak to me today. Today, change me. Lord, whatever you tell me to do, the answer is yes. I will do it. And then, I bet that the songs might minister to your heart. In the preaching, the Holy Spirit might overcome some of it and talk to you about what you ought to do. You see, it's not about all of the presentation. It's not about whether the preacher is doing a great job or a sorry job. It's not about that at all. It's about the heart, your heart. So I say that to you because 
the Levites prepared their hearts for worship. We have to do the same. Okay. Now, the next thing that Israel did was that they obeyed God with their offerings. In verses 44 through 47 of chapter 12, we read this. On the same day, men were placed in charge of the rooms that housed the supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tents. Let me stop right there. So many of us have such a poor understanding of what biblical tithing really is. We think we know what biblical tithing is because we've had a lot of Baptist preachers talk to us about tithing. But I would challenge you, who are students of God's Word, to go back into the Scriptures and to study what tithing was for Israel and what the other offerings were for Israel. You will discover, if you have an open mind and an open Bible, that the giving in both the Old Testament and the New, is much more unconventional than perhaps what you've been taught all of your life. So when Israel tithed, what they literally did was their farmers gathered crops and gave one-tenth of the literal crops, the grain, and they took it to literal storehouses, like these grain silos we see all over the place. They took them to literal storehouses, And they gave that, and that was an offering given to God so that the Levites, who were not farmers, who did not make money, they served in the temple so they could live, so they could eat, okay? And so so that was part of the entire giving of the Old Testament system. And so when we talk about, when you read this about the tenths and about the firstfruits, that's a part of what's going on here. So again in verse 44, on the same day, men were placed in charge of the rooms that housed the supplies, contributions, firstfruits, and tents. The legally required portions for the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and Levites who were serving. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification along with the singers and gatekeepers as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were heads of the singers of the, and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for Aaron's descendants. Let me just say this about giving. Every believer has something financial that they can give to support the work of God's kingdom. And you might laugh, but I'm going to say this in all seriousness. All seriousness, Even if it means scouring the couch for loose change. And I'm not, I'm not being facetious about that. There are people, Christians today, believers of every generation, who are exceedingly poor who may not know where their next meal, much less their next paycheck, is coming from. When you come to worship, there is something that you can give financially. You may have to work hard. You may have to literally look into the couch. You may have to look along the ground for a dime, a penny, a nickel, and pick it up in order to bring an offering to the Lord. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. Listen to me. 
in the Old Testament giving system. People were supposed to give a bull offering or a lamb offering for their sins. Some people didn't have that much money. But even the poor in the Old Testament had to give something. They had to give a pigeon instead. The poor had to bring a pigeon. What did they do? Keep pigeons around the house? No. On their way to the temple or on their way to the tabernacle, they had to capture a pigeon. The Lord provided the offering that they had to give. Okay? You might say, well, just throwing in a dime or a penny, it's not going to make any difference. Listen, not on a human level. But if I, if I recall correctly, Jesus saw a poor widow woman who gave to the temple treasury. Do you understand how big the temple was? How much money the temple ran through? But Jesus saw her, and she gave two pennies. And Jesus said she gave more than anyone else because that's all she had to live on. You see, it's not about the amount that you give. It's about your faithfulness in giving. It's about your faithfulness. And when you give that little amount that you might have, the Father's watching. And the Father who sees everything, He also rewards everyone. And so everyone has something financial that they can give, even if it's not real obvious to you, even if you're going through a really, really bad time. I understand. So everyone gave what they could. Chapter 13, here's what happened next. Israel separated themselves from foreigners. Why? Because they were better than everyone else? No. Because they're racist? No. They separated themselves from foreigners because they were a holy nation, uniquely called by God and designed by God for a purpose. And so being holy means being separate. They separated themselves. Chapter 13, verse 1. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they, back in the Exodus days, they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against Israel to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. And then beginning in chapter 4, you know how you love a good ending to a story? We don't have that in Nehemiah. Beginning in in verse 4 of chapter 13, I should say, Nehemiah began the most difficult task that a man of God ever has. It is restoring holiness to God's people. Why is it so difficult for the man of God to restore holiness to God's people? Because the people who need holiness restored are the people who resist holy living in the first place. Problem number one for Nehemiah. The enemy of God was receiving aid from God's people. Look at verses four through nine. 
Now before this, before this happened in verses 1 through 3, Nehemiah writes, The priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levite singers and gatekeepers along with the contributions for the priests. Do you see what was happening? You have this priest, Eliashib, who allowed a foreigner not only to come into Jerusalem, but into the very temple itself, and not only to come into the temple itself, but this guy was given an entire room from which he could do business. What was his business? His entire business was to oppose Nehemiah. Can you imagine someone being given a room in the temple of God for the sole purpose of opposing the man of God? And this was Nehemiah's greatest arch nemesis. Tobiah. Verse 6. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem. Of course, that's the way the enemies of God always work. They do it behind people's backs. They do it when they're out of town. I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and I threw out all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offering and frankincense I also found out that because the portions oh wait this is the next problem in verse 10 the next problem is related to this problem the next problem in verse 10 is this the ministry of God was neglected because God's people stopped supporting it financially verse 10 he said I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given Each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back into his own field. Do you understand what's happening? The people stopped giving and the men of God, the Levites, had to go out into the fields in order to survive. They had to get their own jobs. One of the problems with that is preachers don't know how to do anything else. Don't send us out into the city to find a job. Good night. But more seriously... The people had neglected to do their duty and support the work of God's ministry. And so the the ministers who were ministering had to go out and get other jobs. And the work of God suffered as a result of that. Verse 11. Therefore I rebuked the officials asking, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levite singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and fresh oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priest Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Padiah of the Levites, with Hanan, the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, to assist them because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. And then he says, remember me. For this, my God, 
And don't erase the deeds of, my, of faithful love I've done for the house of my God and for its service. Problem number three is even worse than the first two. The judgment of God was coming again. Why? Because the people neglected the Sabbath again. Verses 15 through 22. At that time I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians lived there, were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? Do you remember why Israel was gone for so long? Why they were in captivity for 70 years? They were in captivity for 70 years because for 490 years they refused every seventh year to allow the ground to rest. And God takes his commands seriously. And God said, you won't let my land rest. I'll let it rest. I'll haul all of you to modern day Iraq. And I'll let my land rest for 70 years. That's why it lasted 70 years. And, and uh, Nehemiah here is saying, have you lost your minds? You're disrespecting the Sabbath again, just like our fathers did? The judgment of God's going to come back. Verse 19. Verse 18. He said, didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on the city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath? When shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, this is happening every week. He said, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not open until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God. And look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. Man, Nehemiah, the man of God, he's doing everything he can to restore holiness. And then we come to the fourth problem. And this is the worst one of all. The entire plan of God was jeopardized. Why? Because God's people kept marrying unbelievers. And when they married unbelievers, it drew their hearts away from God. It could lead even to the destruction of the entire nation of Israel. We read in verse 23 and following. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. 
Verse 25 is a favorite verse for me. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. Wow. What an incredible scene that would have been. If YouTube was around, man, that would have a million hits in a second, right? He's not messing around. Why why is he being, he's being violent. Why is he being violent? Because he knows that the very people of God, their very existence is in danger. He's got to get some people's attention. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Verse 28, even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Listen to me as we get ready to wrap up. We're in a completely different time and a completely different time place than they were but there are some similarities every one of these dangers that Nehemiah and the people of Israel faced it is a present possibility for our church today and there is a particular sin that keeps creeping up like a fungus that just doesn't want to go away And you know the best way to kill a fungus is to expose it to the light. The fungal sin that we're going to expose to the light of day today is the sin of complaining. Complaining gives aid to the enemies of God. Complaining causes you and others to stop supporting the work of God's kingdom. Complaining invites the judgment of God upon you. And complaining puts the very plan of God for your life in jeopardy. Now, I am your pastor. And I love you. Every day I consider it a privilege to serve you. I have not yet chosen to put Nehemiah's more extreme behavioral modifiers into place. My heart is tempered with gentleness and fondness for each one of you, so please hear me when I say this. If you have been complaining lately, it's time to stop. You are damaging your own spirit. You are wounding the bride of Christ, whom he loves. And you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Here's how you can be part of the solution. The next time you hear someone complain, reply to them this way. So, you're not getting your way? Because that's the reason people complain. They don't get their way. You see, when Christians complain about not getting their way, 
It makes no sense. Because the last time I checked, the Lord taught us to pray to the Father. Your will be done. So the next time you feel like complaining, do this. Choose to pray about it instead. Well, if I don't complain, nothing's going to get changed. Are you sure about that? Are you sure? Is your God big enough to fix whatever you're tempted to complain about? If he's not, just admit it and complain away. But if your God is big enough to fix whatever you think is wrong, pray that God will fix what is wrong. In fact, your prayer should be, Father, let your will be done. And then once you pray, let your will be done, then be done with it. Be done with it. We need to be cautious and careful that we do not identify our will with the Father's. A lot of us have that temptation. A lot of preachers, especially, have that temptation. They think because they're preaching God's word, they're trying to live for God. Well, if I think a certain way, God feels that way too. You sure about that? Maybe not. So be cautious about that type of sin because that's the sin of presumption. And that's a dangerous sin as well. When we pray instead of complain, that is how a Christ follower is to behave. So for now, we're going to leave Nehemiah's more extreme behavioral modifiers on the shelf. Okay? But be careful if you insist on complaining still. Because verse 29 might become a prayer spoken on your behalf. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood, as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. Listen, Nehemiah did his very best. He was not a perfect man, but he did his very best to restore holiness to God's people. And he felt and sensed resistance at every turn. Today, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know how to live. Do it. Just do it. If you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, following him is as easy as ABC. Okay? Admitting that you're a sinner, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he is the Lord of all. He rose from the grave to give you life. And then committing your entire life to follow him. And if that's the desire of your heart, you can do that. 